0: Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. The word of God for the people of God. God. Author of life, we thank you for your word and for the stories of your people, and we ask this morning that your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Today's scripture is going to serve more as a launching off point than as something for us to dive deeply into. But there are a few elements of this story that I want to highlight before beginning my discussion about our vision. First, it's significant to recognize that Paul, who had an immeasurable impact on the church, was not called to be everywhere at once. In fact, what we see in this story is that Paul sets out with one intent, and has the Spirit tell him that he's moving in the wrong direction. Second, Paul's vision of where he needs to be in mission is not exactly a crystal clear action plan. Instead, what Paul receives is a somewhat ambiguous vision of a Macedonian man calling out to him, go to Macedon and proclaim the good news is about as vague as a mission statement can be, while still meaning anything. Third, the way that Paul's mission actually bears fruit is by going to where the people are. What the scripture says is, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. They supposed there was a place of prayer, not they knew with absolute certainty that this is where they would find success. No, they had heard there were people there, and so they took their chances to see what the Spirit would make of it. Fourth, once Paul finds someone willing to listen to what is said, the mission builds off of the networks that she already has. Lydia opens her heart to the Lord, so the next group of people they talk to are the members of Lydia's household. In other words, the connection begins with people they know. And finally, even though the vision is a work in progress, Paul wouldn't have gotten anywhere if he didn't make the decision to follow it. Paul trusts that when the Spirit showed him a direction to move, that it was a direction worth going in. Now, I want us to keep these points in mind while we consider our own mission statement. If you look at the front of your bulletin, you should see our mission statement there. Rooted in tradition, serving in the present, building God's kingdom for the future by bringing the good news of Christ, to the community through word and deed. One of the ways that I think about this statement is to break it up into chunks with each one serving a purpose. Who we are, what we do, why we do it, and how we will do it. First, who we are. We are a people rooted in tradition. We need to recognize that just as Paul could not be everywhere at once, neither can we. We can best serve the mission of God by knowing where our limitations are and playing to our strengths. Now it is worth noting that there is a distinction between being people of tradition and people of habit. I know that in some of our one-on-one conversations I've been vexing because I don't accept the answer of this is how we've done it as a substitute for the idea of tradition. I know that When you ask why I use a particular name for God, or why I do something in the service a certain way, you're not necessarily looking for me to quote a thousand-year-old theologian, or to refer to the ancient life cycles of the Jesus movement. But this is the essential and difficult work that we have to do if we are to understand what our tradition is about. Because if we're being frank with ourselves, The habits of the church in the last century are a departure from the traditions of the communion of saints. The incredibly astute scholar of the Hebrew Bible, Walter Brueggemann, puts it quite bluntly when he states, The crisis in the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has everything to do with giving up on the discipline of our Christian baptism and settling for a common, generic, U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. The evangelical author and activist Shane Claiborne says basically the same thing, although perhaps in a gentler way, in his book The Irresistible Revolution. Shane writes, The temptation we face is to compromise the cost of discipleship, And in the process, the Christian identity can get lost. We don't want folks to walk away. We're driven by a sincere longing for others to know God's love and grace and to experience Christian community. And yet, we end up merely cheapening the very thing we want folks to experience. This is the cheap grace that spiritual writer and fellow revolutionary Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the most deadly enemy of the church. What both of them are pointing to is the reality that for too long in America, the church has been conformed to society. The way that we have done things is leading to the death of mainstream Christianity. Under the guise of Reinhold Niebuhr's so-called Christian realism, the church realized that it could make partnerships with people in power and enrich itself. But that is not where our tradition calls us to be our tradition calls us to be on the margins of society. It calls us not to power, but to powerlessness, not to wealth, but to the common good, not to our own desires, but to the needs of all. And we, especially as Methodists, are reformers of the Reformation. Our tradition, in particular, calls us to a grace that demands responsibility. Our tradition calls us to combine our personal piety with works of mercy. This leads me to our second point, what we do. We're called to serve people right now in the present. As followers of the Wesleyan tradition, we are particularly positioned within the universal church to express a vision of the gospel that considers salvation for the whole person. Our understanding of how God works in the universe is not limited to a salvation that's received only after death. Our movement is born out of a commitment to carry the good news to people in every walk of life. This is why Methodist preachers left the confines of cathedrals to be in mines and fields speaking to the working class. This is why John was a pioneer in the fight against predatory, medicinal, and pharmaceutical practices, why he collected and published affordable alternatives. This is why John and the early Methodists were staunch abolitionists, why they looked at the barbaric institution of slavery and insisted that it was contrary to God's vision. This is why John was an outspoken critic of war, going so far as to name it the original sin from which all others flowed. And this is why we are called to rise to the challenge and serve our neighbors. By which I mean we are called to meet the very real needs that they face. It's no good for us to meet a need that no one's asking for. It's no good for us to meet a need for the sake of it being good press. We act as the hands and feet of Christ when we listen to our neighbors and do what we can to ease their suffering. Having covered who we are and what we do, our third task is to know why we do what we do. We are co-creating the kingdom of God for the reconciliation of the entire world. I've said before that the kingdom of God is both a present reality and a future hope. We are blessed that our God empowers us to participate in the divine mission of reconciling the entire world to God through love. We have experienced God's grace through God's power and presence in our lives, and that grace had free, has freed us to live without fear of the powers and principalities of this world. So it's our responsibility to that grace that we respond by sharing our liberation with others. It's our joyful burden to labor as subjects of the kingdom, obedient to the law of love, because every time that we carry the yoke of the Lord, we get the chance to walk in the kingdom as that present reality. Which brings us to that very last chunk, number four. How do we do it? We honor our tradition, we serve our community, and we participate in the building of the kingdom by being with the community. Just like Paul and his companions needed to be where the people were, we need to seek out the people around us. For many of you, that means using the networks that you already have in this community in order to be a witness of Christ. For those of you who've been in the community, For a long time, you likely have friends or family who are still waiting to be exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are newer residents to the community, as well as the longer-term residents, we have to step out of our comfort zones. We have to be like Paul and go to where the people might be. That doesn't necessarily mean that we'll always be in the right place, but we also can't proclaim the good news to people that we never meet. And it must be said that bringing the good news of Christ to the community means more than just telling people about your church or about Jesus. It means demonstrating the love of Christ to others in the way that you treat them and those around them. Before people will want to be a part of your church and before they'll want to hear what you have to say about Jesus, They will want to see the image of Jesus Christ in you. There's a quote that's often attributed to St. Francis that says, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. In other words, people should know that you are a Christian by your love. Your words and your actions should be cut from the same cloth. This sort of authentic combination of word and deed will show people the wholeness that comes from a life in Christ. Finally, our mission statement doesn't give us step by step instructions about how to do mission. Instead, it gives us a direction to travel in, it provides us with limits so that our energy isn't wasted in directions that we're not meant to go. So I hope that you will all join me in imitating Paul. I hope that together we can take steps into the unknown, trusting that the Spirit will lead us to the place we need to be. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Guiding Spirit, show us the way in which we are meant to move. Give us the faith to trust in you. Shape us in your image so that the whole world will know us by our love. Amen.